to New World next week. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And I'm James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com. 10,000 people policing offensive videos can't be wrong. We've got that story, plus putting interconnected brains on trial. But first, Trump to recognize Jerusalem as Israeli capital. This taken via the Hill. And it's fresh today, December 6, 2017, as I come to you. President Trump announced in a speech that the U.S. recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, something he repeatedly promised during the 2016 campaign that pleased many of his pro-Israel and evangelical Christian backers. Trump, however, has reportedly felt stymied by some of his advisors who have urged him not to move the embassy in order to avoid sparking tensions in the Middle East at a time when he's dealing with the fight with ISIS, the war in Afghanistan, North Korea's nuclear ambitions. Officials said another consideration in signing this waiver. So he made this big announcement, but essentially signed a waiver that said, whoa, 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 we're not going to rush into it. It's still going to take probably a couple of years. So the part of signing this waiver was avoiding a major cut in State Department funding mandated under a 1995 law if the embassy does not move to Jerusalem. Every president has waived the law since its passage. They said immediately designating the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem as an embassy was out of the question for security and logistical reasons. Security and logistical reasons being quite the understatement, James. There's a lot of a lot to this story and I think a lot of tentacles, if we will, that kind of spread out. And I think I've got an interesting related to this story. But I'll throw it back to you as one of probably the bigger geopolitical moves being made. Yes, absolutely. And the startling thing is that it is, I mean, it is like throwing grease on a grease fire or something. I mean, this is just, uh, even if you were a Jewish supremacist, Israel first, Israel can do no wrong kind of person, this is an incredible, insane move to be making at this particular moment that will have absolutely no other uh, no other consequence than to inflame a region that's already very much inflamed. And that goes beyond the actual politics of this and the fact that, oh, surprise, surprise, make America great again meant make Israel great again. Wow, what a surprise. What a bold move from the Trump Trumper in chief. And, um, it, you know, in case you couldn't have told from the fact that he was literally making campaign endorsements for Netanyahu back in the day. And uh, this is friends with Lucky Larry Silverstein and uh, had this pledge to APAC. I'm going to be the best president for Israel, the best, strongest friend Israel's ever seen. Uh, the Israel aid is not going to stop under the Trump administration. So anyone who had any of those delusions, you cannot cling to those delusions anymore. But don't worry, I have already seen how the Trump is God Emperor in Chief crew are already doing their mental pretzel knots to, to justify this. Either they are now 100% on board, yes, Israel 100% and screw the Palestinians and all that, or they're going, well, yeah, but it's the deep state making Trump do this. Despite the fact that he's been promising to do this, he's 100% committed himself to being the best friend that uh, Israel's ever had in the White House, which would be one hell of a statement to make true, and maybe he's going to make that true. Again, this is just a crazy maneuver that will do nothing but inflame an already inflamed region. Uh, this is um, absolute craziness, and... Uh, <laughs> As you say, from the related uh, stories that we can back this up with, it's only going to get crazier and crazier. Absolutely. Well, and even, of course, in that article in The Hill, which does it doesn't mention the evangelical part until a bit down in the article. But that is a huge, fundamental, important part of this story, because basically you have a huge sector of people that are super excited about this 
because this is supposed to happen and this just hastens all the wars that are supposed to happen and that means Jesus is coming back. Hallelujah. Holy moly. The other story to this is a really interesting one from the Free Thought Project and it actually kind of contains two stories in one. Fake news causes an airstrike on Iran and financial markets to crash. And the first part of it is about the whole Red Scare scandal, the Kushner-Flynn guilty plea, this whole thing. What is that whole deal about? The Kushner-Flynn crew reached out to Russia about delaying or defeating a United Nations Security Council resolution condemning Israeli settlements. Why did they do this? Because Israel asked them to do it, getting far less coverage, but also involving the Israel lobby. Just the same. The BBC made a similar error that same day, December 1st, that was used as evidence to support an airstrike on that Friday. Israel launched a series of both surface missiles and airstrikes targeting a town near Damascus, Syria. The attack targeted what appeared to be a military base. The existence of the base was apparently revealed less than a month ago by the BBC, which Ran a report, included satellite images of several buildings. According to the BBC, these images were evidence that Iran is establishing a permanent military base inside Syria. However, the entire report was based on information from an anonymous Western intelligence source, and there was no confirmation as to whether the buildings were being used by the Iranian military. James, again, that's just, you know, adding on top of things that, again, you know, of course, it's not uncommon in lots of you know comment fields of you're a Zionist chill and blah blah blah. I don't know how anyone can kind of continue to kind of level those accusations. Is there's three stories in one about how the Israel lobby is behind a lot of the bigger moves on the grand chessboard. Are they the end all be all unified field conspiracy theory? I don't think so, James. I don't think you really think that either. Right. No, I don't apply the unified field conspiracy theory, as people will know from my interview 600 in my interviews tab. Please go watch it. But yes, we have this story about fake news, Israel uh, being enabled essentially by the BBC, or uh, at least given cover by the BBC to go strike a target in Syria because the Iranians may be there, according to an unnamed anonymous source that we're not going to vet. Yeah, awesome. And then the other side of that story, yeah, financial markets crashing because of ABC News misreporting about the Flynn case. And who was that misreporting? It was Brian Ross, an interesting character who got suspended for 30 days. Oh, oh I'm sure he's crying into his uh, pillow every night over that. Um, an interesting character that I'm going to have more to say on in the future, so we'll keep that in mind. But all this fake news swirling around, coming from the MSM. Well, what are we going to do about it? Well, I guess we need censors on YouTube, right? That's exactly right, and that takes us to our second main story this week on New World Next Week, episode 334, December 7th, 2017, where YouTube is hiring 10,000 people to police offensive videos, this via the Rupert Murdoch-controlled New York Post. YouTube's finally admitting it has a major problem, and robots won't be able to fix it. Google's video streaming service said it plans to hire more than 10,000 new employees next year in a scramble to clamp down on the offensive and inappropriate content that has been plaguing the site. Last month, it was revealed that pedophiles have been posting disgusting comments to videos of scandally clad children. That was after an uproar earlier this year over YouTube videos promoting terrorism and racist leaders like David Duke that had caused big advertisers to flee. We need an approach that does a better job for determining which channels and videos should be eligible for advertising, YouTube CEO admitted in a pair of blog posts this past Monday. The move comes as advertisers, regulators, and advocacy groups 
always, of course, you know, the the most important groups of people in any situation, right? They're expressing ongoing concern over whether YouTube's policing of its service is sufficient. James, we recall a lot of this was all kicked off after the stunning conclusion of America's Next Top President last year when all the advertisers fleed, and that's really when the new popularization of the term fake news came. James, what what on earth are we going to do about YouTube? Oh, well, we're going to have to, you know, get the 10,000 <laughs> censors on top of it. Um, and notice how this works. They swirl all these ideas around all in one. Oh, there's this big pedophile thing on YouTube. Well, we got to crack down on that, right? Yeah, okay. Nah, terrorism. Yeah, we got to crack down on that, right? Yeah, okay. We got oh, hate speech and horrible things. We got to crack down on that, right? Right? Yeah, okay. Oh, and uh, people talking about sex robots. We got to crack down on that. What? Yeah, what? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Corbett Report gets soft censored on YouTube and age restricted because I dared to talk about the robot issue. Um, and this is how it works. It's, of course, Problem, reaction, solution. What is the problem? There's this big pedophile problem on YouTube, this Elsagate thing that uh, is just, if people haven't looked into it, at least read about it. I'm not going to encourage you to watch the videos. I haven't because I don't want to pollute my mind with that nonsense, but I have read about the, the disgusting stuff that is up there on YouTube and has been up there. People have been writing about this and talking about it for months and months and months now. It's been up there presumably for years. And YouTube is now, after the problem boils and boils and boils, now they use that as an excuse to bring in all this, this new age of uh, YouTube censorship. And they're going to scoop everything up in that, the alt-media included. Problem, reaction, solution. This is how it works. I've been kind of describing it as is that, it's that kind of overcorrection. If you've seen somebody you know, a bad driver or it's, you know, terrible conditions make some kind of small move and they overcorrect and they're just, they're essentially. Going to steal yeah. The but whole let's, let's not give them the, uh, the benefit of the doubt on this. They 1000% knew about this Elsa gate thing months and months and months ago. They 1000% could have stopped it well before now, and they could stop it with a flip of a switch in the same way they want to stop the alt media, but no, Leave it. Make sure it becomes a scandal. Make sure people scream out, what are we going to do about it? And then you get them. Then you can overcorrect and people will be happy about it. Advertisers, regulators, and advocacy groups, of course. So let's go from problem, reaction, solution to our third and final story this week, James, where it will be a choose-your-own-adventure. Would you like to hear about the surgeon who wants to connect you to the internet with a brain implant or... Would you like to hear the story of how criminal courts are putting brains, not people, on trial? James, choose your own adventure. I love this idea. Well, I think, well, I've read these stories, so I guess I already know. But I think you can get the gist of that first story from the headline. So I'm going to go for door number two, because I think there's a lot to dig into there. Door number two, how criminal courts are putting brains, not people, on trial. This via Wired. And they begin the article by describing a particularly heinous, murderous crime. And after describing all of this, they say heinous crimes tend to defy comprehension. But some researchers believe neuroscience and genetics could help explain why certain people commit such atrocities. Meanwhile, lawyers are introducing so-called neurobiological evidence into court more than ever. That heinous murder cited in the story, his lawyers called on Pietro Petrini, director of the IMT School for Advanced Studies in Luca, Italy, and an expert, an expert, I tell you, on the neurobiological correlates of antisocial behavior 
They asked him to testify at their client's trial last year. Wells is the, the alleged murderer client's name. Wells had several abnormalities in the frontal region of his brain, plus a very bad genetic profile, says Petrini. Scans of the defendant's brain show abnormally low neuronal activity in his frontal lobe, a condition associated with increased risk of aggressive, reactive, and violent behavior. In Petrini's estimation, that bad genetic profile was linked with a susceptibility to violent behavior, impulsivity, risk-taking, and impaired decision-making. And he says, quote, what we tried to sustain was that he had some evidence of a neurobiological impairment that would affect his brain function, decision making and impulse control. And this, we hoped, would spare him from the death penalty. Spoiler, it did not. But the article goes on to describe all the other ways that it has worked and times that it has worked and how this neurobiological evidence or neurocases, as some of the guys refer to it already in the shortened lingo, is becoming more popular in our Kafkaesque criminal industrial complex. James? Absolutely, yes. Well, uh, the word of the day is bioreductionism. This is bioreductionism, which is essentially the idea, the postulate, that you are not a human. You're not, you're not a person. You're a computer. Your brain is a piece of hardware. And yeah, there's some experiences and things that go in there. That's the software, is the programming that, that creates the different uh, ways that it expresses the, the potential of that hardware. But essentially, you are this hardware unit known as a brain. And if we can reduce everything to that, then yes, at a certain point, there is no such thing as actual personal responsibility for anything. Because yeah, you have you, your prefrontal cortex isn't well developed enough, so you didn't know what you were doing, blah, blah, blah. That's, of course, what they're now literally arguing in the courts and uh, not successfully so far. But uh, as, as the science develops, they'll continue trying to push it. And every, uh, every problem looks like a, a nail when you have a hammer. This is the hammer of bioreductionism. Everything is going to be reduced to this. And this applies directly to what I was talking about with Vin Armani the other day. I made the observation during that conversation that the, pro the real game plan here isn't to make robots into people so much as it is to make people into robots. That is the way they're going to try to equalize everything. You are just another form of robot. You have this uh, programming that we can alter, we can change, we can tinker with. And if we can't, well, maybe then we'll lock you in a cage or put, you know, give you the death penalty or whatever. And that's, that's the way this is going. So this is, this is the future. This is where it's going. They want you to believe that you are essentially nothing more than a computer, that there is no, no essence to humanity other than just the biological brain flesh hardware of, uh, of the, the computer unit. And if we don't resist that, if we don't have anything to resist that with, if we give in, well, yeah, okay, we are just biological robots, then we've already lost the game. Because at that point, then they can program us and do whatever they want with us and justify it in any way they want because of faulty wiring or whatever they want to say. And uh, that's, I think that's the real end game. And that is what's so chilling about this bioreductionist agenda. James, our, our brains must be connected in some kind of old-fashioned way. I was going to use the hammer and nail analogy about the YouTube story about them hiring 10,000 people. This is, again, I think, in a lot of our stories, showing that, you know, it's the technocratic health grid. This is that Tomorrow's Children kind of sequel. And it's all, it's all being rolled out. James, 
I'll try and do uh, more choose your own adventure stories. That's uh, I think that's a good time. That's a good way to kind of break up the fun of doing New World next week. Now, 330 episodes in, so we'll do a couple of deprogramming notes here. It'll be two weeks from now, James, I believe, that we will shoot our now, of course, annual tradition of a new world next year, an episode where we each look back at the previous year, look ahead at the upcoming year, and neither of us knows what the other one is going to talk about. It's one of the most sort of unscripted episodes of New World Next Week that we do. And we do this because we are independent, non-commercial alternative media. We've each got a decade behind our own respective enterprises. I myself do a radio stream that features news, music, memes, and more Monday through Friday, mediamonarchy.com slash listen. James? That's it. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, that New World Next Year very much. I'm looking forward to New World Next Week next week. So uh, we'll see uh, all of you for that next week. Same time, same channel. Until then, James, thanks for three stories. Thanks, buddy. Take care.